yeah. You know, sometimes we don't always see it, but Jesus is at work in our city, and it's really cool when we get to celebrate those milestones for people. Um, I'm just going to invite you to stand with me. Uh, I'm going to read God's word for us this morning, and so if you would stand uh, as we do this together. I'm going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 25. Uh, It says this, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully uh, to your neighbor, For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, and that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for binding others according to their needs. Uh, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed at the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ, uh, just as in Christ God forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everybody. Andrew preached too long last week, so we didn't let him do it again. Um, Just kidding. It's great. Uh, Welcome. If we haven't met before, uh, my name's Matt, uh, one of the elders here at West Village. Uh, Excited to get to to bring the word. I had this picture this morning that preaching is like going to the gym. Sometimes you really dread it. You don't want to do it, and you get there, and you get into it. Exciting. When you're done, you're like, oh, that was great. Um, That's how I feel about preaching now. So um, you guys get the fruit of uh, me spending some time in the Word and how the Spirit was working today. Um, And if you just listen to that passage, um, it's really easy things today. Don't lie and steal or brawl or slander. It's going to be nice and light and fluffy. Uh, But before we dive in, I want to do a quick little financial update. We've been in the habit of doing these just often lately, so everybody's kind of aware uh, of the health of our church finances. Um, We really look at like a family budget, right? This isn't just West Village's money. It's Jesus's money that uh, you guys have given for his mission. And so if you've been paying attention over the summer and late spring, we were running deficits of five to $10,000 a month at times. Uh, and so, you know, that causes some warning signs for uh, the leadership. And so we just said our, our first plan of attack is just we're going to make people aware, uh, let people know uh, and start praying often about this. And so the good news is that over September, we brought in 35000 which is kind of our break-even point uh, as a church. And then last month, we had 40000 so $5,000 surplus. So... Yeah, Jesus has been super faithful um, in our prayers that he will continue to yeah, encourage generosity in us, teach us the, the gift. It doesn't always seem like a blessing to be able to give, but uh, when you do it and experience the joy of it, it's pretty amazing to serve Jesus in that way. So yeah, um, that's where we're at right now. Uh, Jesus has been faithful, so you can clap. I don't know if that's a clap-worthy thing. He, Jesus is clap-worthy, so clap about him. He's, he's awesome. Uh, we trust that he'll keep providing uh, for our church, for his church. So uh, if you have your Bible or your app, open it up to the book of Ephesians. Um, we have been plowing through. Um, we're going to be done pretty soon. We're at the end of verse chapter four. We got five and six, and it'll be great. Uh, and we're turning into this point uh, in Ephesians where it's been, 
you know, pretty philosophical, theological, high level, like, here's who you are, here's how Jesus equips the church. Um, you know, chapter four starts out with this call to unity, but also, hey, here's these apes gifts that I'm going to give to help the church grow up in maturity. Um, and then last week, Andrew started walking us through the beginning of this current section we find ourselves where, you know, the rubber hits the road. I called this sermon this week, Holiness in Action. Like he's going to start giving us concrete examples. And so Andrew last week talked about how we have this old self, our old life um, that was full of sin and evil. And, but we've been given this new life in Jesus. And we're going to start looking at what does it mean to put that on? How our hard hearts and our ignorant heart minds are put to death and we're given the truth in these soft hearts. Now we're created to be like God in righteousness and holiness. Um, and so as we look at the passage this week, it's, we need to remember all the truths that we've been taught because uh, our hearts are going to be, hey, Matt's giving me a to-do list of things I need to do to earn my salvation. And that means we've ignored chapters one through three here, right? That Jesus died to forgive us so that we can be made new and made whole uh, and enable us to live this holy life. We don't need to live this holy life, life to you know, earn his salvation. He's given it to us freely, and this holy life that we start to desire to live is an outpouring of that. We're being changed into that. It's the fruit of knowing Jesus. And so my big question for us today is, what does a holy life look like? What's an actual picture of that? Uh, and where I want to land is that when we have been changed by the work of Jesus, the gospel as we put it here, uh, we are given this new self. And the new self seeks, it desires righteous and holy living. Uh, a life that will love others well, seek to live in unity with Jesus' church and his people. Uh, and so Paul's going to give us five examples of what that holy life looks like. So I'm going to pray for us, uh, and then we can dive in. Uh, yeah, uh, Jesus, thank you that you are so generous and good to us, that you recognize that we can't be holy, we can't be perfect, so you live that life for us. Uh, and then you gave us your spirit so that we can, yeah, strive and start to work towards living in that way, desiring what you desire, um, you know, bringing some holiness into action here on earth. So, spirit, uh, speak to us, convict us, encourage us. Um, help our feeble minds and hearts remember your word this morning. Amen. So we're going to be chapter 4, 25 to 32. There'll be some up on the screen there eventually. Um, if you can't be on your phone without going on Facebook, then just look at the screen. I guess it's not Facebook anymore. Uh, Instagram, whatever you want to be on. Um, and before we dive in, I want to call it three common features of these. I'm calling them examples they're almost like mini little sermons that we're going to go through, uh, five of them in a row. So it's going to be nice and short this week. Don't worry about it. Uh, one of the authors I was reading, John Stott, he highlighted these three commonalities between them, and I thought they were really important. Um, so first of all, all these examples concern our relationships with other people. Holiness is not something that we can pursue in isolation, right? Uh, we, I've heard from many people that if I could just go out in the woods by myself, I'd be super holy. Right? I wouldn't have to deal with any of you people and all your junk. Um, really what that means is you wouldn't have to deal with your own junk because other people wouldn't show you uh, how broken and selfish you are. But we even saw this early church history. You'd have monks and people going out in the desert and be like, I got to get away from everything to be holy. But all these examples are in community together. Holiness needs to be worked out in community. So that's one thing they all have in common. Second, um, they all give us a negative thing to avoid. You can think of that as like the old self. 
but then a positive thing to uh, aspire to, and that's really the new self, right? It's this picture of getting rid of your raggedy old clothes and putting on these like pure new clothes that Jesus gave you, uh, and that's where holiness comes in. And then finally, uh, each of these examples is tied to a theological truth, a truth about who God is and what he's done for us. And holy living is deeply intertwined with who God is and what he's done. From the work of Jesus making us holy to Jesus coming, demonstrating that, to seeing in God's own character, holiness in action, and how he interacts with people all throughout the Bible. Um, so it's really important um, to tie that back. So you'll see it as we go through each one. I'm going to ask, what does this tell us about God? What does this command to not lie tell us about God? Because uh, once you see that, um, it makes these things more true, um, more relatable. So... Um, I have these little catchphrases up there. So let's go to number one. Let's see if they got my thing. So it's don't tell lies, but rather tell the truth. Uh, and that's the verse. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. So number one, sermon at number one. You guys ready? Let's do this. What does this mean? Do not be deceitful. On the surface level, all of these things are going to be like, oh, that's like stupid simple, Matt. I get it. Don't be deceitful. Don't tell lies. Tell the truth. Um, <clears throat> you know, because through our lies and deceptions, what we're really doing is manipulating people. Uh, and so the call here is to seek truth about yourself and your actions and bring that into light at all times. Don't try and hide who you are or what you've done to avoid punishment or shame uh, or to get gain for yourself. And this is so simple and hard to do. Uh, because we want to do evil, right? It's easier to lie and hide so often than it is to be open and honest. Lies get us what we want. Um, I call lies the first superpower a kid discovers. Like two or three, then they're like figuring it out. They're like, no, I didn't do that. I'm like, they're like, did you do it? Then they say yes the second time because they forget that they have to like back up their lies. But it's like, I can change reality by saying that thing didn't happen. And little kids that discover this start to use it to try and manipulate parents, get what they want. Yes, I ate all my dinner and there's like a pile of dinner right next to them so I can have dessert. And you're like, no, you didn't. Like, yes, I did. Like, well, you saying that is not going to change the reality that there's a pile of food next to you you didn't eat. Um, I have a lot of kids if you didn't pick that up yet. But it's this power we get, right? To get us what we want. Maybe it's a promotion at work. Maybe it's how you finally make that point in your last argument with somebody. Like, I need to be right. I'll just fudge the truth a little bit to bring my point out. Maybe it's how you get that free slice of birthday cake every week at a different restaurant. Um, I know. I know. Lies get us what we want. They have this power. They can keep us from being punished. Like we said, we use them to cover over our guilt. So we don't have to own up to how we've hurt somebody. We don't have to face the consequences when we lie. They protect us from being known. So many of us are deeply ashamed of who we are or how we're made or parts of our story that are painful. And so we use these lies to pretend to be something else, somebody else, to not let people see who we are, how we're feeling. Sometimes we lie to ourselves that way. We lie to our community, our church. We use lies to try and shape the world how we want it, what we think it should be. Saying, I don't know, it's, it's okay. I'm just going to ignore that pain, that hurt, that truth, that reality, and make this new fake life 
put on a happy face, whatever it is. Um, my kids all get straight A's and are all the best on their sports teams, right? Like we create these false little worlds to make ourselves feel better about what our life is really like instead of sitting and being satisfied in the truth, even if that truth is hard, not always what we want, but there's a faith, a trust that comes with being truthful with ourselves and others in Jesus. So what does this truth tell us about God? How do we tie that back to his character? Uh, we see Jesus called the way, the truth, and the life. God is truth, right? In him we find no lie or deception. Uh, he is like real, realness embodied. Uh, and as this verse says, you know, this truth actually seeks out unity, right? Uh, <clears throat> it calls us to something bigger. It calls us to be bound together. And we see that model in the Trinity, in God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Being fully known through that bond based on truth helps them be one, be unified. There's no deception. They can have full trust of one another. And Paul is calling the church to strive for that same unity based on truthfulness. God's character and his actions proclaim that truth and it demonstrates the unity for us. So if we're trying to think like, why would I be truthful? Well, the God you say you follow desires truthfulness, embodies truthfulness above all else. He wants you to be real. So how does this commitment to truth telling and not lying, not deceit, contribute to unity and maturity of the church? We're gonna ask this question of all of them because that's really the thrust of this whole chapter four. It's like, well, I want you to grow up into maturity. Here's some gifts I'm gonna give you, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, to help you all grow up in maturity. And I want you to be unified. Jesus prays for unity for the church as one of his last prayers for the church, right? Paul constantly talking about the church needs to be unified. You're bound together by the same spirit, by the same father, by the same God. This is really important. So all these things I wanna tie back on how they contribute to unity and maturity amongst us in this room, in your missional community, wherever you live life with a group of believers or non-believers, wherever that intermixes, putting this holiness into action will bring unity and maturity. So relationships, community are built upon being known and trusting one another. We can't be bound together if I don't know you and if I can't trust you. And lies destroy this foundation. If I find out that you've been lying to me, deceiving me, instantly that foundation is eroded and gone. I feel betrayed, I feel like I can't trust anything you're gonna commit to or say to me again. You've probably experienced this in community, right? Where lies have been found out, trust has been eroded. And you start looking at like, is that person being fake to me? Is that person being false to me? Can I trust them? Do I really know them? Lies get in there and they just cause us to question everything. Therefore, if we're gonna be people that are committed to maturity and unity, we need to be committed to that truth. We need to be honest with ourselves and with others. It means we know our own brokenness. We're not afraid or ashamed to speak it, show it, let it be known. We're gonna tell people that. We're not gonna lie to hide our guilt. We're not gonna lie to make ourselves look better. We're gonna trust that Jesus gave us this new identity and we can be ourselves. We can't be a community that hides hard truths behind soft lies, right? How are you doing? I'm fine. No, my week sucked. 
it was really hard, my kids are awful, I got fired from work, whatever it is, right? Great space to have those hard truths come out and let your wrongdoings come out, right? We can't lie when we hurt people. or say, no, it's not really a big deal. It is a big deal. Those wrongdoings need to be brought into light so forgiveness and healing can happen. We need to know ourselves, let others know us. Um, where I see this the most, at least in this larger gathering context, is what that happy face that people so often put on, right? This needs to be a place of realness, of knowing you people as you come in the door, right? It's, it's so many times we don't feel like we have time or space, but we can celebrate the fact that nobody's in here at 10 o'clock because they're having conversations in the lobby. As long as those conversations are real, you're sharing your life and your passions and your hurts and your desires with each other as you sit out in that lobby and connect in a real way, not lie to each other. Bring that truth that brings and develops deep relational unity. Because um, if you don't, we're going to have this kind of shallow relational cynicism that's like, can I be known here? Do those people really care about me? They just seem to be all smiles and fake hugs, half hugs, one arm, keep one arm in. That's a dude hug. <clears throat> so be people. Let's be a community that's committed to truth-telling. It starts with understanding where you're at, the truth about yourself, and then just being truthful in your actions, in your interactions, in your conversations with everybody here in this room, in your missional community, in your family. I hope that scares you a little bit because that's pretty deep vulnerability and that's scary for a lot of us. But it's what Jesus wants for us. And it's what will bring a deep bond between us. So, sermon at one, done. Number two. Don't lose your temper, but rather ensure that your anger is righteous. The verse is, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. So is it wrong to be angry? You don't have to answer that out loud. Um, I probably subconsciously have answered that yes for most of my life. Um, so I'm, you know, don't get excited about things because that's too close to anger. Don't be too passionate about something because you might be angry. And I had this picture that, you know, all anger was wrong. We see pretty clearly from this verse and a bunch of others throughout the Bible that anger in itself is not actually a sin. Anger itself is not wrong. But the problem with anger is it fuels our actions and it can fuel sinful actions very easily. So in our passion, we can hurt people as we fight for what we want. We stomp them down uh, to get what we desire, that we're so passionate or angry for. And the call of this passage is to let our anger work for good and not evil. Work for Jesus' desires and not our desires. And that's hard to do. So why? Why is anger so easily turn to evil because in its simplest form it's not getting what we want right we don't get what we want we're upset about it angry about it so our desires they might be pure they might be wrong shape what makes us angry what we care that passionately about to get upset about and so anger pushes us out you stole my cupcake I'm mad give it back um, 
you took that from me, you hurt me, you cut me off in traffic, you got a promotion that I wanted. I desired that thing, I need to tell you or I need to use my anger to take it back or fix that wrong against me. And it's a great thing, right? You can see the power of change and anger, but only if our desires line up with God. But since we're so selfish and sinful, anger becomes this tool that we use to get what we want with no thought of others. I don't care if this is gonna hurt you, I'm gonna use this anger to fuel my actions to get that thing back. You know, if anger was a tool, it'd be like a knife, right? It's super helpful in a lot of circumstances, get stuff done, cut up a big chunk of meat, it's great, but it's sharp. It's so easily to cut yourself or to hurt others with it, or for it to become a weapon. We need to use it as that helpful tool and not a weapon to hurt ourselves or others. So what does this verse tell us about God? It tells us that he cares, that he's passionate, right? If we were to look at God's anger and the, the idea that anger is okay, we see this in God's wrath in the Old Testament. He's angry about the injustices, the wrongs, the sins people commit against others and against him. We see this in the life of Jesus. Everyone's favorite story, he goes into the temple and he flips over tables and he's angry and he makes a whip, right? People love preaching on that passage. Um, God is angered by disobedience and injustice because he cares about us. He wants what's best for us, but we waste our potential and we live these sinful lives and it causes him to pursue us. Because of God's anger, he can call us to a holy life. He can write this passage that we're reading today saying, be better. I'm angry that sin is destroying my community. I'm angry that it brings disunification. I'm angry that you're being immature and hurting others. Anger causes God to fix what's wrong in the world. It leads him to send Jesus to die for us because he cares, he's passionate about it. He wants to see change. He wants things restored to the way he designed them and created them to be. So when you think of God as an angry God, I think we shy away often, right? It's a scary thought. We don't want to be the subject of that anger. But take hope in it. Because it shows that he loves us, that he cares deeply, that he wants something better for us, that he is willing to put into action what he cares about. And in the same way, we can use our anger for good. We can use our anger to help call ourselves and Jesus' community to holiness. So what does anger look like? in this context. And I, and I think we have a hard time with this because we have not seen healthy anger often. Anger is yelling and rage and sinful and like a form of violence to get other, against other people. And so we shy away from anger. We don't know what to do with it when we experience it. We don't know how to ex express it ourselves. But it's essential. It is essential for our community for everybody in this room, for your missional community, to grow up into maturity. People need to be angry when they see immaturity in you and lovingly call that out in you, walk alongside you, confront you. We need anger in this group that people can see wrong and injustice inside or outside this community and be like, I want something to be done about that. That needs to change and I'm gonna use this anger to fuel my action because it drives us to call others to holiness and to call ourselves to holiness. Have you ever been angry at yourself? 
can lead to like self-deprecation, beating it up. I'd say that's unholy anger. Holy anger is be like, man, I'm upset that I did that. I'm angry. I care that I hurt somebody or that I let somebody down or that I disappointed Jesus. And I want to change that. Anger is this impetus, right? It's really the engine of growth. They call it the emotion of action. It drives us to something. So we need it. We need this righteous anger that fights for God's desires in our community. And we need to make sure that we're doing that not in a sinful way, right? Righteous anger calls something out, but it doesn't stomp on someone, right? It doesn't have that violence, that destructive side of unholy anger. Unholy anger just cares about the ends. Righteous anger cares about the means to the ends. It'll get us there. But in a way that's tempered with love and and compassion. And we need to express it. Because if we don't, it becomes depression, becomes bitterness, becomes revenge. All these things, right? Anger needs to be let out. Because if we bottle it up, it doesn't turn into good things. It's a gift. It's a gift of holy passion. And it can be used that way for mighty good things. Or it can be this evil tool of self-satisfaction used to harm and hurt a community. So be angry. But be angry for what God is angry for. Because if you do that, you will grow up in maturity as you root out sin and evil in your life. And you will bind a community together. A lot of preachers are angry. Chris is really angry. And he comes up here and he says, you guys aren't living like God wants you to live. Let's go do it. Let's go do it together. He's using that anger to call us as a community to something better. So be angry. It'll be good for us. Hopefully. We'll figure it out if it's not. Number three. Don't steal, but rather work and give. Get a job, you lazy bums. Um, Pretty straightforward here. Don't take stuff from other people. You know, put in the work for those things that you want, for that thing that you desire, the things that you need. Work for them. Make money in honest ways. Don't steal from your employer. Don't sit around on the couch all day. Because work is good for you. Um, God designed us to work. Even before the fall, he said, here's a garden. Work and take care of it. Uh, There's something refining about it uh, to have that purpose. Well, then Paul drives it home, right? He says, anyone who has been stealing must no longer steal, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. So why do we work? So we provide for ourselves, but we want to have excess so that we can provide for others. Share with those in need. Simple, uh, but beautiful, beautiful call, right? Work hard so you can share with others. We so quickly uh, become evil in this and steal and stealing. Another thing you see often in kids, oh, I can just take that and it's mine? That was so much easier than working or asking my parents or saving my allowance. We become lazy and impatient for our needs and desires. So we just go, we steal and we take. Don't want to put the work into it. It comes down to this idea that we think we are more important than someone else, right? I'm going to take this from you because I think I need it more than you really need it. 
where you're just a business, who cares? I'm more important than the employees, the owner, whatever it is. We start raising ourselves up and demeaning someone to say, it's okay to steal from them, right? It's okay. So what does this tell us about God? Um, I think we see a lot in how he worked and then shared. And it talks about in Genesis, God worked for three days or six days um, to make this beautiful creation. And then he created humans and he shared it with them out of this bounty and goodness, right? Like it wasn't just a world, it was a good world. It was an amazing world. It had everything they needed. Um, and he gave us his son, another massive act of generosity, not needed, or he didn't have to, he desired to. He gives of himself. He is so generous that he blesses others. So it shows us that side of generosity in Jesus and in God, right? We sit up here and celebrate a financial talk. I work really hard to not say, you guys did a good job. You guys gave money. Because deep down, I believe that Jesus is generous with his church through his people. Um, we see his generosity all the time. It also tells us that God cares about justice, right? Who gets stolen from the most? Those that can't protect themselves, the weak. He doesn't want the powerful to abuse them, to take advantage of them. He doesn't want others to be hurt through stealing and theft. So how does this contribute to unity and maturity in a community? Those who steal are immature, right? They're not trusting, one, that God will provide. And they're not having that patience and self-control that the life of the Spirit promises, right? Well, the, fr the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. I think I forgot one in there. There's that patience and self-control that comes with the Spirit. They lack that faith. That I don't know where tomorrow's bread's gonna come from, but Jesus does. I don't need to go steal it. I can be faithful and wait. And then those that steal, they start to harm God's community. If there was someone in our midst that was constantly stealing and taking advantage of us, one, it's gonna create disunity as people are like, are they really doing that? There'd be mistrust be pain as people had to count the cost of those thefts, confrontation. You can just see it's like this festering wound in the midst of us that would cause great harm. But those that work hard to build up the community, they work, right? They put in the time, put in the 40, 50, 60 hours a week and be like, man, that was really hard work and I'm gonna provide for my family. But out of the excess of that, I know there's that other family at West Village and they just got laid off. They need meals for a month. I've worked hard, God's blessed me. I can provide, I can help them. Think of the bond, right? It's really hard to receive gifts from people, which is ironic because we say as Christians that we received everything from Jesus. But we have a really hard time receiving gifts, but if you let yourself receive a meal or a gift card or someone paying your hydro or a hug or a car ride, Right? If you start being open to receiving these things, it binds us together. You don't have to be ashamed that you are needy. We are all needy. We all needed Jesus the same amount. We can bring our neediness to our community and say, hey, can I have help? 
And that'll start binding us together as we are known in different ways in our neediness together. So work hard so that you can give. Be needy so that others can help you. That might be the hardest part of that whole section. Um, but it's really important. It's really important. You think of Acts 2, which is a common passage that we preach and teach around here where it says the believers met together and they had everything in common. If you guys have ever been on West Village in common, um, it's had its ups and downs throughout the year, but it was created with that verse in mind that we as a church community would have everything in common. So out of our excess, we can say, hey, I don't need this. I have extra. Does anybody need it? Um, do you need help? And that's our desire to be known and bound together by that type of generosity. I don't even know what time it is. Oh, we got lots of time. Just settle in, people. Number four, don't use your mouth for evil, but rather for good. The verse says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What does this mean? Watch your mouth. Our words are so powerful, right? They have great impact on people. And to recognize this power, we need to use them to build people up, to encourage, to inspire, to challenge, to show people there's something better. There's a holy life that Jesus offers you, and our words help people get there. But since they are so power, but all, powerful, but also so easily used, we quickly abuse our words, right? They're one of the first weapons we discover as a kid. I hate you. I don't want you to be my parents. Get out of here. Shut up. Names. I won't list all the names. Um, you get the picture. Call people names as a way to say, I'm upset. I'm angry. I want to hurt you. I'm going to use the power of my words to hurt you, to tear you down or get revenge on you. We start to use them as a harsh way to protect us, to keep others at a distance, right? I use these harsh words, they'll stay away. We belittle people, demean them, so we don't have to get to know them or empathize with them. That person is this. They're horrible, they're awful, they're so snooty. All those things, we start to belittle and demean. So we start to use the power of our words for ourselves instead of Jesus. I'm starting to see that theme here, right? can use these things for good. And what does this tell us about God? God knows the power of words. Go back to creation again. He spoke our world into being. He spoke us into being. The Bible starts with this ultimate demonstration of God's powerful word. And it grieves God's spirit. It says in this passage that the spirit is grieved when we abuse this powerful gift. Instead of using it to build up, we use it to tear down. So recognize the power of your words. Recognize that they can have great benefit to Jesus' community. I don't sit up here and mime out a sermon. That would be awful. You would all leave. I, we sit up here and we use words. You sit, it's weird. You sit here and listen to someone talk at you for 45 minutes to an hour, depending who's preaching. And... <laughs> 
And these words have great impact, right? They go out, they are embedded in our community. The Spirit uses them to remind us, to convict us, to encourage us. Because uh, words are powerful, right? This is the Word of God. It's all embedded in Christianity that words are powerful. So we need to take that seriously. Use them as a word of encouragement. Use your words to bless others, to convict others, to bring healing to others, to better yourselves in this community because they have that power. They can unify us. They can bind us together. You know, one of the silly little things, maybe not silly, we, we're really big on language here, right? We call this to gathering, missional communities. You don't go to church. You are the church. We're recognizing some of the power in words to give us a framework that we are a community together and these are the things that define us. We put the word gospel in front of everything because we want that to define us. Those words to mean something. So instead of unwholesome talk being the first thing that comes out of your mouth, talk that puts yourself down, puts your neighbor down, puts your community down. Have holy talk. Holy talk that builds up. Builds yourself up. Builds your neighbor up. And building up doesn't just mean making them feel good about themselves, right? Building up means helping them reach that picture of maturity that we see throughout Ephesians in the Bible. Someone that is holy and righteous. They are defined by Jesus and his church and his mission. That's what it means to build someone up. And that's what our words can do. So recognize the power. Don't belittle the weight that your words can have in someone else's life. This is the one that hit me as I was prepping this morning. It's like, I'm going to go use a bunch of words. And in my silliness and sarcasm, I can demean and belittle things. And I need to be really careful with that. We all need to be really careful with that as we come and preach and let Jesus be known with our words. So there's that old quote that says, preach the gospel at all times, use words as ne necessary. One, nobody knows who said it. And two, it's not true. Like, we got to use words. They're so powerful. Our actions may support our words, but the words are the important part. <sighs> Point five, we're getting there. Don't be unkind or bitter, but rather kind and loving. So the verse is, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ <clears throat> God, just as in Christ God forgave you. It's a lot going on here, right? It's a mini list inside of already a list. That is Paul right there summed up. He likes his lists. Um, in a lot of ways, we'll see hints of all the other examples in this last one, and um, it wraps it all up nicely at the end. But let's unpack the negatives first, right? We can read lists like this, bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, malice. But like that was a lot of words. I kind of got a gist of what they mean, but we don't actually stop and be like, do I have those things in me? Do I understand fully what that means? So quickly, bitterness, this idea of a sour spirit, sour speech, you're really defined by cynicism, resentment. You know, you've had high hopes, they've been dashed. You've had expectations of a community, it didn't come true. So you become bitter. You resent the people around you. You resent the leadership. You resent your friends. It's bitterness. If you've tasted it, you will know what it looks like in your life. 
connects rage and anger. This could be like passionate fury. It's that rage. It's really high, boiling, hot, tempered. It's out there to make quick actions. And then anger, that sullen hostility. hostility. There we go. Sullen hostility. You know, these are really the negative aspects of anger that we talked about earlier. That we're using this violent, hate-filled action to get what we want right away with rage. Anger might be more slow to boil up, but it's all about us. It's all about getting what we want right now in a violent way. Brawling, um, you know, I think brawling, I think like fisticuffs on the streets, um, but really the connotation that we're looking at here is one who's prone to arguing and yelling, right? They are slow to listen and quick to yell. That is a brawling type person. They're just going to get what they want in an argument by going in hot and fast. I'm going to be the loudest, the angriest, and I'm just going to push everybody out of my way. That is a brawling person. Slander is speaking evil about someone, typically behind their backs. Um, You know, churches need to watch out for this one very closely, especially a community that's intertwined. It's easy to say, hey, you know what that person did? They just went on this trip, or their kids did this at Missional Community. It was awful, Um, right? We're using words to tear someone down instead of build them up. Malice, plotting evil against someone, planning to hurt someone. Um, This one we probably hold pretty tightly. I never hear someone come up and say, hey, I had a lot of malice in my heart last week, Matt. I was planning to like punch my boss in the face. Like it just doesn't happen but I guarantee it's in there. I know you people. You are all planning to hurt someone somehow because you're upset at them. (coughs) It lives in us, right? Big or small, kind of weeds its way in with our angers or hurts or not lived out or worked out and healed. So all those things sound awful. Um, Don't think we would desire to do any of them, even though we do a lot of them. But what should we do? What is the call? That's the old clothes. We're going to get rid of that. What's the new clothes that Jesus gives us? It says, be kind and compassionate. Forgive one another. That word kind is like, I don't know. It seems like a nothing word. It's like the marshmallow fluff of words sometimes. But in reality, there's actually a deep, deep meaning to it here. And even more so for the early church. So in Greek, which the original New Testament was written in, uh, the word kind was Christos, and the word Jesus was Christos. So the early church took this word kind to mean be like Jesus. It was really important to them because of that, um, how they sounded the same. There's a fancy word for that that I just blanked on. Um, but the similarity forged this connection of if, the call, if you're called to be kind, it's a call to be like Jesus. And then Paul reinforces that connection when it says, forgive like Jesus forgave. He wants us to see that. Because Jesus helped people. He did that out of his kindness. He empathized with their needs. He understood what they wanted out of his kindness. He forgave their sins out of his kindness. We are called to do the same. But it's so, so hard, right? So hard. That sounds great. I want to be that person. But I can't. Because there's another part of me that wants to be bitter, rage at people, be angry at people, 
brawl and argue with them, slander them, plan malice against them. These two sides of me, they fight. And it's because sin lives in us, right? Deep down, we all think we know what's best for us. We don't fully trust that Jesus knows what's best for us. There's always a question mark. We think that we're more important than others. And because of this, we get hurt and become bitter. We don't get what we want and we start to rage. People need to believe what we believe, so we argue and brawl with them. Start demeaning and slandering those that have threatened us or made us feel bad. We plot evil against our enemies. These enemies that we hold up to protect ourselves from dealing with our own stuff. And so this potential for evil lies in all of us. If you sit in this room and be like, well, that's not me. It is you. It's me. You can see these things. Take them seriously. They're, the potential is there. And that evil becomes actualized as we give in to these things. As we let that bitterness simmer. Like, I'm just going to have that one little bit. But if we don't cut that off, if we don't deal with that, it grows and it turns into these other things. The evil festers. It starts to take over our lives and then... We live the unholy life, the unrighteous life, not a holy life. And the beauty here, though, is this verse tells us one of the deepest truths about God, right? That he is kind and compassionate. That he knew this potential for evil lived in us. He has seen the impact of sin from day one. And so he sent Jesus to be a solution to this problem that we could not solve ourselves. We couldn't fix ourselves. We couldn't root out that evil problem. And so Jesus gives us a new life. He forgives us. He offers us a chance to partake in holy living with him. He demonstrates that kindness and compassion and forgiveness with his whole life. Read the Gospels. You see it over and over again. Sees needs, sees hurts, sees brokenness. He goes in in his kindness. His compassion, he helps people. They come to him and they confess their sins and he forgives them. He does it over and over and again. And because he lived that perfect life, he then says, okay, no one else could do it. I'll live that perfect life for all of you guys so that you can have it too, that you can be made holy by what I did. Man, Jesus is awesome. That's an awesome picture. It's worthy of singing songs like we do every week. So how does this contribute? to community? How does being kind and compassionate and forgiving build up each other into unity <clears throat> and maturity? And it's pretty obvious from what we've looked at that these evils will quickly tear down a community. They'll create mistrust and hurt, resentment, resentment, disunity. A community needs kindness. We need people to care for and love one another, not just be acquaintances, but be friends and family. We need that. It's the only way we will be bound together because there's so many things that want to tear us apart. It needs compassion. You need to be able to walk into this room of sometimes strangers, most of the time people in different spheres and places of life than you, and have compassion on them to understand their needs, their desires, their wants, and their hurts. If we can't empathize in that way with one another, how will we ever be bound together? We'll just be frustrated. Be like, you get it together. Be more like me. You get it together. Be more like me. Does not build up a community. It tears us apart. Or you get a church that all looks the same. We may be guilty of that at times at West Village. 
we need to have more compassion and more empathy for those that come in and are different than us. Because it's so, this is not in my notes, but it's so compelling, right? People are like, why do you hang out with that weirdo down the street? Like, because Jesus loves him, I love him, he's broken, I'm broken. There is a bond there that doesn't make sense to those that don't know Jesus. But it proclaims so loudly that Jesus is good. And then we have a same father. So you want to be a good missionary? Hang out with Christians that aren't like you and tell people about it. <clears throat> a community needs forgiveness. We are all sinful. We need forgiveness from Jesus, but also from each other in deep, rich ways in this community. Because we're not going to be perfect, right? Our leadership, our missional community leaders, each of you in this room, you are not going to be perfect. A lot of times, nowhere even close to perfect. And so you're going to hurt people, right? It's going to happen. The phrase is, hurt people, hurt people. It's not malice or intentional, it's just in our own brokenness, we don't realize how we're hurting others at times. So it's going to be part of how we live together. And so we need to know how to forgive one another. That needs to be a habit and a muscle that has worked out well. How could we not? We've been forgiven so much. So we need to go to others and say, hey, you hurt me. Hey, your action had this impact and it was really hard. Have those conversations. Bring it out into the open so it can heal. Because hmm. if we don't heal, right? If we don't heal from these things, we all become incapacitated in small ways as we walk through this life of church together. And then our, we're like, man, I have no capacity to do these things for Jesus. And it's because we're carrying this bag of hurts on our back that is weighing us down. Because we haven't gone to those people and said, hey, you hurt me forgive you. I want to be unified and healed. We need to give attention to these things, to talk about them openly and honestly with groups and one-on-one, -on -one. because that process of hurting, forgiveness, and healing binds people together in amazing ways. If you have experienced that with somebody, you will know them and be connected with them in a great way if full healing has happened. And it's this glue that starts to stitch together all the potential divisions in our midst. If you're not sharing your hurts, then you're actually robbing our community of a chance to bind together. And I know that sounds harsh. It's like, oh, you're the victim and it's your fault that you're not making it better. It's not what I mean. It's just, we have this opportunity, right? To one, have healing for ourselves, but two, be able to practice what Jesus did in forgiveness and be unified around that. So we can't just try and forget or ignore our hurts. They need attention, right? My proclivity is like, if I just ignore it long enough, it'll get better. Uh, instead of saying, here, I'm gonna go tell what happened, tell the story of it, let it be known, give it some attention, and that attention can bring healing. And trusting that Jesus will also be in the midst of that, that his spirit will bring healing. We need to be a people defined by compassion, kindness, and forgiveness because these things define Jesus and his people need to live like him. Um, I'm gonna wrap up here. Uh, and as we conclude, I know there was a lot today, five little sermonettes. Uh, and some of you will leave here with this burden to like, I gotta remember those things and I gotta put them into action this week because uh, that's the only way Jesus is gonna love me. 
Don't do that. Some of you are just going to forget everything as you walk out the door. That's probably most of us. I get that. Um, I preach for Jesus, not for you guys. Because um, it's just like in one ear at the other sometimes. But I want to boil it all down. Let's, I'm the same, okay? I, I'm a hypocrite to that extent too. I want to boil it all down to a call for action for two different groups in here. And the first group are the ignorant people. You don't want to be in this group, but you do. So just pretend you're the ignorant person because the next one's worse. Um, these are, the, the, this is us. We just didn't know. We didn't know that Jesus desired this for our lives. We didn't know what it meant to live a holy life. And so you might not have been su surprised at some of these examples today, but they were new to you and they were thought-provoking and challenging. Like, oh man, I need to be careful with my words. I need to use my anger for good. And the call for you that are ignorant is to get to know Jesus better. Study his word, look at his holy life, look at how the rest of the Bible calls us to this holy life and what it looks like. Make sure your motivations for doing that are right. You know, ask Jesus, what are your desires? How can my desires more align with yours, Jesus? What does that look like for me right now? Don't stop seeking him. Don't stop letting him change you so that you can grow up into maturity and unity with Jesus. Pursue a holy life through learning about Jesus. That's for the ignorant. The second are the disobedient. We don't want to be in this group, but it's likely where a lot of us land. We know what Jesus wants for us, but we have learned to ignore his desires and justify what we want instead. We have let white lies become okay. We use gentle anger to get what we want. We steal just a little from those that have a lot. We abuse power of words because really, they only hurt people a little bit. They're just words. We appear kind, but have really stopped caring about people. Through our apathy and self-deception, we have ignored the call to holy living. We have ignored Jesus' desires and put ours ahead of his. And our disobedience has left us feeling hollow, like we're drifting away from this community. We feel disconnected and our ministry is ineffective. We're like, why is, feels like nothing's happening? When someone says, what's Jesus doing in your life? We're like, I don't know because you've been disobedient with this call to holy action. We have stopped maturing. We have stopped growing. We have stopped caring about the unity of Jesus' church. And so the call for the disobedient is to take this seriously. Jesus died to offer you a new way to live. Don't abuse that. He has so much for you. Don't think you know better. Stop disobeying him and trust in the path he laid out for you. Believe that he knows better and follow his ways. Commit yourself. This moment, say to Jesus, I commit myself to maturing and being unified with you, Jesus. Through putting holy actions as a main part of my life. Hmm. So desire a holy life. Jesus desires that for you. He knows it's what's best for you. He gave everything so that you could have a spirit and walk it out.
Let's pray. Invite the band up. Hustle band. Oh, yeah, Jesus, that is convicting and hard. My heart wants to shy away from it. And I'm sure some of us in this room want the same thing. Recognizing that I lack much and I need your help. And so, Spirit, I pray that that truth will sit richly on us today. Uh, that we need your help and that you offer it fully. Spirit, you come to equip us and encourage us and inspire us to live a holy life, not to earn anything from you, but out of an overflow of appreciation for what you have done for us. So help us, Lord. Help us grow up in maturity and be unified by living this out together. Amen. Let's stand together as we respond this morning.